All right. Everybody okay? Thank you, Pastor Stephen. Appreciate the update and uh, really, really thankful for all the uh, energy, time, effort, thought that has gone into a program for our church to uh, fit into, to reach into our community and reach to the nations. And man, what great opportunities. So any, any inclination, uh, you've heard us preach in Acts, you've heard us talk about it incessantly, any inclination you may have that maybe, maybe, I maybe, might, y'all get what I'm saying? Possible. It could be that you may want to do something like this, like going or whatever, then Sunday afternoon is a great time to come and hear about those opportunities and do it. I take a maybe any day, right? Rather than a nah, I'm not doing that. I'll take a maybe possibly any day. So come out and be a part of it. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17. We're just moving right along here in the book of Leviticus and uh, getting to some, uh, uh, you know, every, every week. I say, you know what? I'm going to take it from 17 all the way to the end of the book tonight. Let's go ahead and end Leviticus this evening. And then I get to 17. I'm like, no, this is really good. We're going to stay right here. So we're going to do three verses tonight. Just kidding. We'll do the whole chapter. We'll do the whole chapter. I'm really thankful for uh, the opportunities on Wednesday night that are going on in the life of our church and just so much happening, just exciting things with our institute, our children, our students, the choir, so much happening. And then in here, looking at God's word together, the book of Leviticus is a book that uh, obviously takes some shots throughout uh, Christianity as that one that kills all of our Bible reading plans and, and, and ends those things. But hopefully we'll see some some fruit as we look to chapter 17 tonight. We, we got through 16 last week. 16 really closes out the first section of the book. Uh, you start off, you know, Leviticus has no small talk in it. It kicks off right from the beginning with the offerings that are to be given by the people for certain purposes, and it has those offerings in place. And, and then it tells us how uh, that the uh, the priests would be set apart and what they would have to do to be ordained, if you will, or set apart for the ministry and what was required for them to give those offerings. And then it comes back and tells this how they are to administer those offerings as the priests to the people. And then it ends up there with some purity laws going straight into chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the day that the sacrifice is offered by the two goats that we discussed last week, the goat of expiation, the scapegoat where our sins are removed from the people and taken and dropped off in the wilderness, and that goat of propitiation where the sins are dealt with and the wrath is placed upon one and how Christ Jesus fulfills both of those through his role on the cross and what he does. He removes our sin from us and he takes the wrath of God in our place. And so we saw that last week. We're going to keep moving here in chapter 17 because the shift that takes place here in chapter 17 is kind of a shift between the theological to the practical, if you will. Chapters 1 through 16 deal with the theology of it, the, the, the sacrifice, what they mean, why they're there. And now 17 through the rest of the book is going to deal with that practical side of worship or the holiness that is required of the people played out in everyday life is what it's going to deal with. And so chapter 17 is a chapter I'm saying tonight that's all about worship. It's all about worship. How are the people to worship God? How are they to worship God? These are not my normal reading glasses. I forgot them. And so I just picked these up. And even as I look now, just to tell y'all, in January, I'll be one year closer to 50. And, and even as I put these glasses on, I still can't read this. So I'm going to, we're going to make it through it, you know what I'm saying? But if I pick my Bible up, are y'all going to be okay with that? All right? Everybody's going, I want to be a distraction up here with these glasses on. I know most of y'all don't have to have them. <laughs> Worship. After looking at Yom Kippur, after looking at the Day of Atonement, now we move in. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing the Lord has commanded. 
Again, in the book of Leviticus, this is the word of God. What comes here comes from the authority of God. We'll see that more and more in chapter 18 and other places. But what comes here comes from the Lord, and the Lord is given his word. And remember, when we get to the scriptures, the word of God and following after the Lord, and what the Lord requires is not, as I've said several times, and I'll repeat it here, is not a contractual agreement. There is not a back and forth as to what is required. It's not the Lord says this and we go, I tell you what, I'll be willing to do this, but I'm not willing to do that, Lord. Can we work out a deal here with a contract and pass it on? He's not sliding this across the table and saying, will you handle these, uh, you know, will you take these conditions and, and we write back and say, I, I, I won't take that one or this one and I'll take this. What comes here comes from the authority of God's word, and it's not a contractual agreement with the people. It's the requirements that God gives for the people. And so when we come to the word, this is not something we can say, I'll give that or I'll take that or I'll do this. This is God's word, and we're under the authority of God's word to follow all of it, every part of it, because this is what God requires for his people who dwell with him. And so the God, uh, the God of the universe, the God who created everything out of nothing, the same God who redeemed his people Israel out of Egypt, the same God who gave them the laws and the statute, the government by which they are to live and to function, the same God that saved them out of Egypt so he can be with them and dwell with them has given them the requirements that is needed for them to dwell with the holy and living God. And so ultimately, Chapter 17 continues that, and God is telling the people how to worship him. He's calling them to worship him only. He's calling him to worship him only. Now understand the importance of that. God, uh, it says in the scriptures a couple times that he is a jealous God, right? Which means he is jealous of the affection of his people. The people aren't free to give their affection to another. They're not free to give. Not, and before we say, God, that's, that's a little harsh. He's saying he's demanding them to worship him. Well, surely, because ultimately what we'll see here is the relationship between God and the people is pictured in a different relationship. The other relationship that, it's, that pictures the relationship with God as people is the marriage relationship in Scripture. You know, God is married to his people. Christ is the head. The church is his bride, for example. And so ultimately what this relationship reflects in marriage is pointing us to the relationship between God and his people. And God is saying, I am jealous for your love for me, not to share it, not to give it with anyone else, not to, not to offer it to anyone else. And we recognize that that's right. If that's the relationship we have, if God is demonstrating this, then each of us, most of us in here, or have been married at some point, have, do have a wife, and the expectation is that our wives should not share their love with another man, right? Or our husbands should not share their love with another woman. That we are united in a covenant relationship and we share our love with each other. So the Lord says, you're not to give your love or your affection to another God. In worship, you're to worship me alone. In fact, it's, it says down here in chapter 17, if you go down here to verse 7. Verse 7 is a verse we mentioned Last week, you know, and it was talking about the goats and, and sending the goat Azazel out to the wilderness and why we do not believe that that goat was an offering to a, another god or somewhere because it says in verse 7 of chapter 17, they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons. They're no more to sacrifice anything to another demon or god. Now, every ancient Near Eastern culture had a sacrificial system. And, and what would happen is you're put into a context, into a place, like in Egypt, who had other gods. Sacrifices were offered to other gods there. You had those things. So what the Lord is saying is, this is not you mixing, mixing your worship for me with a worship for another. In our context, I think we understand this. Uh, we, we'll get to a little bit. In other contexts, it's even more clear. If you, if you were to go, as I've said before, in somewhere like South Asia or the country of India, for example, where, where the Hindus uh, have a bank of gods, some 330 million gods, and, and, and they have this freedom within there that they can worship the ones they choose, right? And so they worship those gods. And you throw into the mix 
their ancestors into it. So they're worshiping some 330 million gods, some mixture of those gods and others. When you're sharing about Jesus in some of those cultures, it's quite easy for them to add Jesus just to that list of gods. Let's just say, yeah, okay, we have all these other three. Why not add another one? I'll accept that. I'll take him. And so ultimately it's easy for them. And what the Lord is saying is you can't add me just to some other list that you have offered. It's me only and no other. Me only and no other. In fact, look, to bear out on my illustration before, listen to what he says. In my version, the English Standard Version, it says, So they shall no more sacrifice or sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they, y'all see that next word? Whore or prostitute. After whom they do that. That's an image or a picture of a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, right? And someone leaving that relationship to go after another. The idea is, he's saying, you are going after those goat demons and you are prostituting yourself. You are throwing yourself at another lover. You're not to do that. You're to worship me alone in this relationship. In this relationship. The danger for us, quite oftentimes, is that we can put other things for in our culture in place. We can put other things in place of God and give it, give it our worship or assign worth to it. That's what worship means, to assign worth to something in your life. So, so what do we assign worth to in our life? Look with me to 1 Timothy. I'm picking up my Bible now. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is writing here. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, I mean, you can, even go, you can even go back up a little bit. Let's uh, go back up to verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. Y'all have heard that before, right? Can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Notice it doesn't say the love of money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It's not as if the love of money is the, the, the root of all evil in the sense of singular. It's saying that when you love money, it leads you to all kind of peril and trouble. Why does Jesus say you can't serve God in money, right? He says it because nobody in here shapes money into an, its own image. I don't shape money to look like me, right? I can't shape it. I, I, it does something. I can't shape it into it. So ultimately, money will shape me before I'll ever shape it. And so the love of money will shape me into a person or into desires or into worldly things that are not godly or faithful. It shapes me into something. And that's what Paul is saying here. This love of money will shape you into something that does not love God, follow God, and you put possessions as far greater worth than God himself. He doesn't say being rich is sinful in and of itself. He's saying the love of that, the idea that that's what gives you worth, Oftentimes in our society, it quite is what gives us worth. People think the bottom line is what our identity is, right? In our socioeconomic structures, people think our bottom line of our bank account is what's most important about us. But what's in reality, he's saying here, is that's not our true identity. It's not how much we own that finds our worth. Our worth is found in the Lord God Almighty. And when our worth is found in him, if we worship or give worth to anything else, then we are going to fail miserably. And it will never satisfy it's the root of all kinds of evil. Through its craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Oftentimes we worship possessions and it will lead us to disaster. We don't just worship possessions. We worship people. We worship people. Notice what Matthew says or what Jesus says in Matthew 22. He says we must love God with all our heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. And what? Second, love our neighbor as ourselves. The order of that is quite important. 
God says you love him first with everything you have, with all your heart, mind, body, and strength, and then you love your neighbor. The moment we elevate people ahead of God or above God, we have put them in the wrong place. Just a, a, a good rule that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 is that we never assign worship to anything that's created. It doesn't make any sense, right? Let's talk about common sense. It doesn't make any common sense to worship something that's created whenever, when it's created, there has to necessarily be what? A creator. And the creator, by definition, has to be greater than the thing created. Is that, y'all understand what I'm saying? So why would you worship the created, which is secondary to the creator? It doesn't make any sense. And so for us, we simply say anything that's created would be foolish to assign worth to greater than the creator himself. And so the Lord says, you worship me, you love me, and then everything else is secondary. People become secondary. You don't put them first. We cannot, we cannot get that order mixed up. We also quite often not only worship possessions and people, we tend to worship pleasure. We tend to worship pleasure ruled by lusts and passions of the flesh. Paul says that their God is their stomachs. And what does he mean by that? He means we love food, and it's great because we just had supper. He means that we do that, but what he's saying is, is that we're ruled by our desires. We're ruled by our pleasures. We're ruled by oftentimes what we want. And so, so the stomach gives the idea of, of, of I'm craving something, not just food in his mind. He's, he's using that as an illustration to say, I want something now. I, I need the instant gratification that it brings. I need this right here. He, he's using some idea. We know how this works because it's all over in our society. I don't know about you guys, but every single time I go to the grocery store, I cannot help but buy Reese's Cups. Because they're right there beside the checkout line. You know what I'm saying? And the impulse is, there they are. And they're easy. And I want them. And they're easy to get. Our society is built off of that. Playing off of our pleasures. Counting on us to make decisions with our stomachs. Paul says, their God becomes their stomach. They're not worshiping God. They're worshiping their pleasures. We must avoid that. And worship God alone. But not only that, we worship oftentimes promotion. We get puffed up in the idea of our public persona, in the idea of public praise, in the idea of recognition outside from others. And while some of those things may be good, they are never good when we put that worship of public persona, public praise, and selfish ambition above who God is and what he's done in our life recognizing that it is God who elevates us, not anybody else. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Gives grace to the humble. So while we may not add Jesus alongside 330 million gods, oftentimes we do place other things like possessions and people and pleasure and, and promotion above God himself in our life. And we sign worth to those things rather than to God himself. In all of those things, we recognize each one of those are gifts from God. Our possessions are not something that we worship. They are something we recognize are gifts from God. For Paul would ask the question in Romans chapter 2, what do you have that has not been given to you? So why would we worship possessions that have been given to us by God, worship God alone? The people in our life have been placed in our life by God. He has crossed our path for Acts chapter 17 says he determines where we live. He determines where we go. He determines our, the steps of our life. He determines who's in our place. They've been given to us in our life. The children I have are gifts to me. Why would I put worshiping them above worshiping the God who gave them to me, or even pleasure. God has designed us for pleasure, right? He's the one who invented it. He's the one who made it. We, we should enjoy life. We should have good things. We should, because God is the one who has invented these things, and he is the one who opens up his hand, as Psalm 145 says, and satisfies the desires of every living creature. 
Those things are from God. Why would we assign worth that belongs to God to things he's given us? Or even promotion. Our gifts and our talents and our abilities are all gifts, talents, and abilities from God himself. Even the talents you see in the parable, right? Uh, in, in the parable of the talents. And, and God gives five to one and three to another and one to another. And they go out and what do they do? They take what God's given them and they increase them. And God says, well done. But they can't work apart from what God has given them in the start. They take the talents and the blessing God's given them and they work hard to bring God glory with them and increase them. So even our promotion in life comes from the gifts and talents and things God's given us. Ultimately, what God is saying here is not something that should be outside the norm. It's not something that should catch us by surprise. It's something that quite, quite honestly is rational and reasonable. Worship him alone because he is the one who's given us everything. He is the one who's blessed us with all our possessions. He's the one who's given us all of our talents and our, our abilities and, and all that we have. He's the one who has put people in our life and relationships that are there. He's the one, he's the one who makes sure we have everything we need in our possessions in our life. Because if he takes care of the birds in the field, right, and he takes care of the flowers in the field and the birds of the air, Surely he's going to take care of us so we don't worry because God's got us. Why would we worship those things? It makes perfect sense to only worship God. But oftentimes, we tend to turn away from that. In fact, look at what James says. Turn with me to what James says. I don't think I'm jumping the gun here. Sometimes I like jump before I get to the next point because I get so excited. James chapter 4. James chapter 4 is a special place in my heart because there's just some passages that are easier to preach because they lay out perfectly like an outline for you. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, I, I, my, my first mission trip was to Russia in 1995, and I went there and I was ready to preach, and I had all these evangelistic sermons, and my first time I'm in a church, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm in the church, and the guy comes up to me, and we're at a church service, probably about, about 35 or 40 people in there, and they're singing and everything, and, and he says to me, you're preaching tonight. I said, all right. All these people lost because I got a powerful packed sermon to get them saved. Now, these are all church people. You need to come up with a good, like, discipleship sermon. I don't have that, you know? I'm 20 years old and scared to death, and they don't even speak my language. By the way, y'all mind if I tell you a story that has nothing to do with anything? It was at that church that I French kissed an 85-year-old Russian man. <laughs> tell them the truth. And he had zero teeth. We pulled up, and the tradition in Russia, of course, for the males in church is to greet one another with a holy kiss, right? And so you kiss on one cheek, and then you kiss on the other cheek. I was just off the bus. First night there, and I was aware of the one cheek. I was not aware of the second cheek. And so I'm coming up. The older, elder gentleman of the church is greeting us outside. He's an old man. He's got zero teeth in his head. Just a sweet smile, you know. And I go, he comes in, grabs my hand, pulls me in, and we kiss on this cheek. And I don't pull back fast enough. And so as he's going from this cheek to that cheek, it is straight like this. Just <laughs> not a tooth in his head. So, right after that, the leader of our team said, Hey, you're preaching tonight. I'm still shook. 
But I go to James chapter 4 because I knew this passage. Listen to what James says. This is for church people. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. First John tells us if we hate our brother, it is murder, right? So he says you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you see what James says here? He says, in the church, quite oftentimes fights and quarrels are coming because you are sinful, desiring yourself above everybody else. And so you'll murder your brother because you want what you want. He says, this is the opposite of true worship and biblical Christianity. In fact, it demonstrates that you're not really worshiping God at all. You're adulterous. You've turned away from him. And so... So the remedy is, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? He wants us to worship him. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. First point. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. That's still the first point. You submit to God, then you can resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It just lays out perfectly, right? What I didn't know at that moment was after it was over, that church had gone through major quarrels and fights over nonsense. What he's saying here is the reason it happens is because you get your worship wrong. You get your worship wrong. You put yourself, you put your possessions, you put even other people above God. You're adulterous when you do that. You're turning away from your first love. The whole book of Hosea is built upon the picture of God's people committing spiritual adultery by not worshiping God alone. God says here in Leviticus, you cannot bow to another. You cannot sacrifice to another. This is the sine qua non. This is the line by which we cannot cross. You must worship God alone. Alone, he says. Not only tells us he must worship him alone, then he says he commands them or shows them how they are to worship him. Look in verse 3. If any one of those... In the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. Blood, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. He's saying here that if you are going to make a sacrifice and an offering, you can't just do that randomly, recklessly anywhere out there. There's a method to how you worship. If you're going to make a sacrifice, you have to bring it to the tent of meeting. You have to bring it in to do this. God is saying, this is how you will worship me. These are the sacrifices that I will accept. He's already gone through that whole process. So he's already gone through of how they bring the goats and the oxen and the turtle doves if you need that. He's gone through that whole process of what qualifies as right worship. He's gone through that whole process already. Now he's saying you can't just do that anywhere you want to do it. You can't just do it anywhere. You have to bring it to the tent of meeting. So now he's, not, he's already specified what is right worship and what is acceptable sacrifice. And so now he's, now he's saying to them, here's where it has to be done. 
Here's where it has to be done. It has to be done at the tent of meeting. God is commanding them how they are to worship. God is ordering their worship in a particular way. And he orders ours, by the way. He orders our worship. Surely we recognize that we must worship, as John chapter 4 tells us, when God is talking to the woman, we worship how? In spirit and in truth. We do not worship in trivialities or triteness. We worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, our worship must be driven, driven and guided by the Holy Spirit and built upon the Word of God. Worship in spirit and in truth. We don't have the privilege or right just to design a worship service how we want to design a worship service. God has told us in his word what is to be expected. It's even told us for us nowadays. In fact, this, is, uh, this has been kind of a, a position throughout church history. There's been two positions on worship and what it is. One is called the normative principle, right, of worship. The normative principle means you can do anything unless the scriptures forbid it, Right? You can do anything unless the scriptures forbid it. That's the normative principle. Anything's okay unless the scriptures say, don't do that. Does that make sense to everybody? Then you have the regulative principle of worship. This means you can only do what the scriptures clearly state you can do. And so normative principle, you can do anything unless the scriptures say no. Regulative principle, you can only do what the scripture says yes to. Does that make sense to everybody? Those are basically the two positions on worship. And, and, and in many ways, most people will fit between kind of a, a mesh of both of those, right? We'll fit with kind of a mesh of both of those. I mean, I growing up, my first sermon was preached through a puppet. Y'all got what I'm saying? My first sermon was preached like this, through a puppet. And, and, and I was, you know, six, and I was behind a screen, and I thought it was great. I'm probably not going to use a puppet to preach a sermon for you guys now. I know y'all are upset. I really don't care about that. So I'm probably not. Because ultimately, the Scripture, but what is it? The Scriptures teach us clearly that what is acceptable in worship is that it's built upon the Word of God. In truth, we worship. The true in God's word is truth, as he would say later in John 17. It's built upon the word of God. So worship is grounded in the word. It's why we here at Taylor's read the word of God together in every service that we come together. We read it together because the word of God drives everything. Not just the, not just the reading of the word or the preaching of the word, but understand that we have a rubric by which songs are even chosen built upon the word. It's not just willy-nilly as we do it, but even building those upon the word. And before y'all all, everybody in here goes talks about how great hymns are. You do realize we only sang about 40 of them in the Baptist hymnal. There was about 600 of them that were so terrible, nobody ever sang them. Because we want to make sure the word is good, right? So the word drives our worship. The word drives what we do. We sing in worship because the scriptures tell us to sing in worship. It even gives us a hymn book in the word of God through the Psalms. We preach in worship because the scriptures tell us that the word must be proclaimed boldly. In fact, we preach in such a way in, in traditional, even our architecture reflects the centrality of the word of God in a church. Some churches... You can see it in the, how they build the front. And some of this is lost in modernism and other things. But if you go to some churches, you'll have the pulpit of the church over on the side. You ever been to a place like that? Have it over on the side. The pulpit's on the side. And what's in the middle? The table. Because they build their worship around the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, as they call it. So the Eucharist is a center. This is in Catholicism, the Mass is why they call it this. And, uh, and so the Eucharist is at the middle. The preaching or the speaking of the word is on the side. It's the table that we gather around as the center part of worship. We, as Baptists, don't reject the table, but we change the, the, uh, the, the architecture so that our pulpits, and I still like a good pulpit. This one's a little shabby. But I got ruled out for one of those big battle, you know, the battleships, you know what I'm saying? The pulpit I grew up in in my home church, you had to take four steps to get to the other side on this side and four to get to that side. The pulpit, though, is at the center of the church. 
whether it's a long straight or whether it's fanned out, the pulpit is in the middle of it. Why is that? It's not just because it's symmetrical. It's because we believe traditionally that the word of God is what we build our worship on. It's the word of God. And so here we build it in the word, and we recognize that the word works with the spirit to produce our worship. Produce our worship. We're guided by the word and the spirit in the production of our worship. By the way, it tells us that we must worship with each other too. God's word says, do not neglect meeting together. That does not mean you cannot worship in your home. Our family enjoys times of worship together in our home, and you absolutely should do the same. In fact, I'm excited. I saw the page proofs today of our Advent devotion guide that we do every Christmas that goes along with our sermon series that we'll be giving to you guys and providing so you can worship at home along with our sermon system series through December. We value that, and we think that's most important, but we also value the gathering together of the saints to worship. We also value that. Because we come together. We do not neglect meeting together. Because that's how we're spurred on to love and good deeds. As we meet together, as Hebrews chapter 10 says. So God not only commands us to worship him alone, he also commands us to, to uh, how we are to worship him. We worship him with our bodies. Romans chapter 12, 1, as living sacrifices. We worship him with our voices. Psalm 95, 1, as we sing a new song to the Lord. We worship him. We worship him not based upon our preferences. Y'all recognize, and I, I, I got to say this. Oftentimes, two things happen. If you ever come to me and you start with, Pastor, I've got a complaint. I've got a verse for you. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Go home and pray about it. And then come back to me if you still think this is valid and the Lord wants you to complain to me. That's that verse. Is everybody good with that? Everybody good with that? Y'all didn't like that one. That's in the Bible. 99% of the time, the problems people have with worship are not biblical problems. They're preferences. They're the preferences that you have. And when you look around a room tonight and you see we've got 200 and some odd people in here, can you imagine how many different preferences are here, right? Ultimately, what we must be most concerned with, what we must be most concerned with is that the word of God is lifted high, that Jesus Christ is exalted and that he is honored through the preaching, the singing of the word. That's what's most important. And sometimes it may not be how you like it. But as long as it's exalting and lifting up Christ, then you got to recognize that's a preference. That's not a priority. That's not a priority. The Lord says, I'm not concerned about your preferences. I'm more concerned that you do this the godly, faithful way. The godly, faithful way. Now, with that being said, we go to number three. And, and y'all are free to come and complain about that to me later. God commands us to worship, and I'll I, I put it this way, let's put it clearly. God commands us to worship through blood. There are three points here, and all three of them are vitally important. We worship him alone. We worship the way he tells us to worship him and he guides us to worship him and we worship through blood. This is not a secondary or tertiary point. This is vital. Look at verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Why is this blood here? He told him earlier, you're not to eat anything with blood in it, right, so as to be strangled. The blood here acknowledges a few things. First of all, there's a lot of death that takes place in Leviticus, isn't it? I mean, you come to sacrifice, you got some animals dying. There's some blood flowing. And so there's a lot of death. But what God is saying here is death is not to be something that you're reckless with. In other words, if you're to make a sacrifice, you must bring the blood in 
because it testifies that you know that it's only by God's command and his allowance that death is taking place. The death of an animal is not something flippant. It's not something... In fact, let me just say this. When we see an animal dead on the road, we run over it and it's nasty. We should be reminded that it wasn't supposed to be like this. The nastiness and gruesomeness that we turn our head away. And if you see a dead animal and you're like, oh, man, look at that. That's cool. Then you're kind of weird. <laughs> the nastiness and grossness of that is a reminder that death wasn't even supposed to be here. Death, in all its forms and fashion, is here because of sin. And so ultimately here, he's saying the, when the ox is killed, you can't just kill the ox and flippantly deal with this as if it's no big deal. Anytime life is taken, anytime life is taken, there must be some admittance that I'm only doing this under the authority of God himself, he's saying. So we bring the blood to testify that this is God who has allowed this. It's a testimony that this is God who has allowed this. We're not taking this flippantly. We can't just kill Anything we want, anytime we want to do it. I'm, by the way, I love hunting. I do it. We kill it. But every good hunter knows you don't kill flippantly even there. First of all, it costs too much money to process good meat. You know what I mean? And second of all, you don't kill what you don't need or what you can't eat. It's not just a game. And everybody knows this. And it's a sense of that sense that anytime life is taken, this is no small thing. This is no small thing. Then, secondly, blood is God's means, as it says here, of atonement, substitutionary atonement. For the Lord told us when sin entered in, then death comes. And the wages of sin is death. And the only way sin will be overcome is through what? Death, the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So these sacrifices become a testimony to the seriousness of our sin. Because I am a sinner, there has to be a sacrifice made in my place. Blood has to be shed. In other words, all of these sacrifices, as we talked about, the bloody nature of the sacrificial system, the blood everywhere on the altar and everything else should be a reminder to us of just how sinful and how awful our sin is. It's a reminder of how awful it is. And so here, blood has to be shed if we are going to have our sins forgiven. And God, in his grace and mercy, has allowed a substitutionary sacrifice to be made for our sins through this animal or that animal in Leviticus chapter 17. This gift of blood that is given is that. It's a gift of God's grace. Because if it wasn't this animal... It should be me. The wages of sin are death. It's death. So if it's not this animal, it should be me. But this whole passage prefigures something important. There's many, as we talked about this past Sunday, who seek to make the Bible relevant again, right? And if you're going to make the Bible relevant again, then my goodness, you can't be talking about blood all the time. It's just gross, and it's too much, and it's too... Uh, we don't need that bloody stuff, right? There's many what would say that, that part of what makes Christianity so, so harsh is, is, is the discussion of things like this, of death and blood. But I would say that if it's not for the blood, there's no salvation. If it's not for the blood, there's no life. If it's not for the blood, there's only death for us. In fact, you remember when we were going through Acts 15, because y'all remember every sermon, and you got all your notes in your plane. And you had that weird passage in Acts 15 when, when on Sunday morning we were talking about where the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised, only this. We put no hindrance, only that they don't eat food with blood in it, right? That goes directly back to, to Leviticus 17. 
This is a part of worship. And remember what I said in that sermon was these requirements weren't a hindrance for them to come to God. It was what they were saying is necessary for them to worship God only, to reject the gods of this world and worship God only in his method and in his way. And you recognize the blood and its power and its necessity. And this blood points us, like everything else in the Old Testament, directly to Christ Jesus. Directly to Christ Jesus, if I can. Closing out here. Let me just read to you a list of passages in the New Testament that refer to blood. You may not be able to keep up. I'm going to go fast. And what the blood does for us. The blood of Christ establishes the new covenant for us, Matthew chapter 26. The blood of Christ brings forgiveness of our sins, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. The blood of Christ must be drunk if we're going to have eternal life, John chapter 6, 54 and 56. The blood of Christ purchases the church, Acts chapter 20 verse 28. The blood of Christ provides a propitiation for our sins, Romans 3, 25. The blood of Christ justifies us before God, Romans 5, 9. We participate in the blood of Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The blood of Christ brings redemption for us, Ephesians 1, 7, Hebrews 9, 12. The blood of Christ draws us near, Ephesians 2, 13. The blood of Christ brings reconciliation and peace to us, Colossians 1, 20. The blood of Christ brings sanctification, 1 John 1, 7. Our consciences are, our consciences are clean, cleansed by the blood, Hebrews 9.14. The blood of Christ brings confidence to enter into the holy place, Hebrews 10.19. The blood of Christ purifies the heavenly tabernacle, Hebrews 9.22. The blood of Christ speaks a better word for us, Hebrews 12. The resurrection takes place by the blood, Hebrews 13.20. We are saved by the blood. We are freed by the blood. In Revelation 12, 11, we overcome Satan himself by the blood of the Lamb. You see, why is it true that we overcome Satan by the blood? It tells us that he is the great accuser of all of us. And he stands there accusing us before God. And how do we stop those accusations? It's not by the blood of bulls and goats. In fact, the author of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats really did nothing for us. But it was a placeholder until the true sacrifice would come. The blood of Christ Jesus himself. And so the blood of Christ Jesus himself is the blood that was shed on our behalf in our place. And that blood is what we claim. When the accusation comes against us, it's that blood that washes us whiter than snow. It's that blood that frees us from our sin. It's that blood that redeems us and saves us. It's that blood that makes sure Satan has zero claim on our life. It's the blood of Christ that we offer in the face of the claims of the devil himself. That's what we bring forward. And so the reason why this is so important, how you treat the blood in Leviticus 17, is because it's telling us that there's a greater sacrifice coming, and it'll be the blood of that sacrifice that will be spilt on your behalf, and not one single drop will be wasted. But every bit of it will be efficient and effective to bring salvation to his people. So don't waste the drops of blood from these bulls and goats because there's a better sacrifice coming and that one won't be wasted. It's precious. And that's why we sing, right? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me whiter than snow. Right? Can we list, can y'all list out the songs? Y'all got any others? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus speaks for me. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Are you washed in the blood? There's power in the blood. And we don't say power in the blood, do we? We say power. <laughs> there is a fountain filled with blood. It's why throughout church history, we have sung songs praising and thanking God for the blood of Christ Jesus because it saves our life. The blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary, the blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. 
it will never lose its power. Y'all, y'all, y'all know that, right? It soothes my doubts and calms all my fears. And it dry, I could sing right now, but I ain't going to do it. <laughs> Dries all my tears. Oh, the blood that gives me strength from day to day. It will never lose its power. Because it reaches to the highest mountains. And it flows through the lowest valleys. And it gives me strength for every moment. You see, that's why Leviticus 17 tells us you can only come to God and worship him how he has said. Because it's only through the blood that you are welcome to worship him. It's only through the blood and by the blood that we are clean to enter into his presence. It's only through the blood and by the blood that we have salvation and we have life. And that blood is precious. So we still believe that we are blood-bought. We still believe that we proclaim a blood, a blood-soaked faith and a blood-cleansed life because Jesus shed his blood for us. It tells us in Leviticus 17 that those who don't worship this way will be cut off from the people. That, in the middle of the wilderness, is a death sentence. That's a death sentence. If you don't come and worship God how he says, you will be cut off from the people, it tells us in Leviticus 17. That's a death sentence. You're sent away. You're not living in the community. You don't have food. You don't have covered. You don't have protection. You don't have all. So it would be a death sentence to not worship God in this way. You're cut off from the people. But even Jesus has an answer for that. Because Isaiah 53 says he was cut off from the people for us. And he shed his own blood for us so that we can be welcomed in to the family of God. Where we are not under a death sentence and we are not under condemnation because Christ Jesus has set us free. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Let's worship him in light of what he's provided for us. And him alone. Father, thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. Help us to love you more today than ever before. Love you more tomorrow than we did today. God, you are good. Thank you for Christ Jesus and thank you for the fact that he shed his blood in our place. God, not a drop of his blood was wasted. It fulfilled exactly what it was meant to do. Redeeming your people from your sins. I'm thankful I am one. And may that be true of all of us here. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you Sunday.